This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. All we need to do is figure out the right ideas and then put them into practice. That just isn't true. We have not chosen 30 thinkers because we think they're the ones who got things the most right. How to Think Politically by Graham Garrard and James Bernard Murphy. Well, that's two authors of whom we've got one here at the moment. Uh, Graham is joining us on Skype. Graham, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Right. So the book is called How to Think Politically. Um, and that's, I wanted to say first, that's not a manual, is it? It's a, a more a tour d'horizon than a, than, a, than a how to. It's not a sort of practical guide. No, it's not. You're right about that. Um, so... Normally, at this point, I'd, I'd, I'd do a quick stand first and say, this is the kind of book it is. But I'm actually going to invite you to do that. Tell me about the, the, the book and, 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 and what, vari- what kind of book it is then. Right. Well, it's uh, aimed at uh, general readers who don't necessarily have any background in politics or any haven't, haven't necessarily studied it formally or anything like that. Um, it's not an academic book, although it deals with some academics and some academic topics. Um, It's aimed really at people who just have a general interest in politics. Um, So it's meant to be accessible and it's written in that manner. Um, It's... uh, Oh, I think it is accessible. Essentially, it's it's more or less 30 shortish chapters about 30 different uh, thinkers who've contributed to our, uh, the ways that we think about political action and, and political uh, behavior. So, yes, it, 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 it sort of does give you a, a nice wide uh, playing field, doesn't it? Yeah, it covers a really, really broad range um, in a fairly superficial way, but I think that's a good thing in a book like this. So, yeah, it starts in with Confucius uh, 2,500 years ago and comes right up to the present and covers um, thinkers in, uh, in China, um, in, in Africa, in um, North America, Europe, uh, India. So it, it really does range very broadly. Um, but the idea of doing that is that um, it's trying, we're trying to combat a certain conception of politics which has taken hold. Um, this, you might call this the House of Cards view, the sort of very cynical <laughs> view, the sort of Frank Underwood or Fra- Francis Urquhart view that politics is only about power and it's a kind of game, a, a, some a brutal game um, of positioning and status and power. Of course, all of that is true, but it isn't the whole truth. And we had the idea that the the way in which politics is discussed, the language that's used, the 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 way in which it's conceptualized nowadays, particularly, um, is, is kind of debased. It's missing a lot out, and so we thought if by turning to these exemplary thinkers, um, we could try and show the readers that there are other there's another way to talk about politics rather than just as power and position um uh, and that's in terms of ideas we make a distinction in the introduction between um might and right between power and justice and we tried to show in the beginning uh, in the introduction that politics to really understand politics you really need to encompass both and that 
and that the the bit that we want to focus on by looking at these thinkers is um, is the second of those. It's it's concepts of justice, um, it's ideas, um, it's all those sorts of things which tend not really to play any role or much of a role now in, in political debate, in discussions about politics. So that was part of our reason. Absolutely. I made a, a note in the uh, margin uh, that you're, you're optimists. You're actually interested in yeah. how thinkers have improved the world, that, which um, it, it sort of addresses that, uh, you know, d dealing with the current debased elements of, of politics. Um, yes, that's very true. Um, I mean, um, the, the part, part of what the the what I call the the House of Cards view of politics leaves out is the role that ideas play in politics, and you only have to look at history to see so many examples of that. Um, now you say we're optimists. Well, <laughs> that depends. I mean, ideas don't always have good consequences. Our point is that they have consequences, good and bad, um, and that you you have an impoverished idea of politics if you ignore that. So give, let me give you a couple of very quick examples. Um, Karl Marx, um, you know, if it weren't for Karl Marx, there wouldn't be a uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, at least not as he um, as he became. And without Vladimir Lenin, the Russian Revolution would have been there either wouldn't have been one, or there would have been a very different outcome. Let's put it that way. And and but for that the 20th century would have been completely different. So there's an example of how um, the ideas of one thinker, Karl Marx, really did have a, a very um, uh, huge impact on the whole shape of the 20th century, so, which would, yes, which would so, look different. So that's, that's one side of an equation. But you're also quite interested, I've read the whole book, so I also know that you, you chaps are quite interested in how far abstract thinking can be... Um, well, how far it can be removed from experience. You, you make a contrast between people who live, uh, you know, quiet lives like Immanuel Kant and uh, those who experience upheavals like um, Thomas Hobbes or Tom Paine. And uh, there is a question how much their experience contributed to their philosophical outlook because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not some ivory tower um, uh, abstraction for everybody. No, um, uh that's true. I mean, um, most of those thinkers, of the 30 thinkers, a really small proportion were academics, even though these ideas now tend to be studied and taught by academics. Um, they, they're not, they, very few of them were themselves academics. I mean, there were just a few exceptions. Nietzsche was a, was a professor. Um, Hegel was a professor. Um, Karl Marx was not. Most of them were um, uh, led active lives, either in politics, like, say, Machiavelli, um, or were political activists like, say, Karl Marx, or intellectuals, um, but not actually academics. And I think that's important. I do think it shapes and colors their experiences and is reflected in their ideas to some degree. Well, it takes us back to oh, to Plato and, and Aristotle, doesn't it? Yeah. The philosopher king, whether um, whether it is practical to bring, uh, or, or who who ought to be in charge? There's a there's this division that you make between uh, well, not you, <laughs> Aristotle makes between intellectual virtue, which is reason, and uh, practical virtue, politics, and the, the you know for for liberals like me, there's a slight cognitive dissonance. You know, if things are true, if 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 you can be correct about things, we ought to be able to govern that way. And yet, 
when people uh, when people bring that uh, as their governing principle, you get the French Revolution or very possibly Jeremy Corbyn. I guess we'll see. <laughs> you know, it, it, but disaster can can arise from from believing that you've got the the, the truth of the human uh, condition. Uh, absolutely, and I'm glad you said that because um, we don't want people to come away from the book thinking that, oh, um, all we need to do is figure out the right ideas and then put them into practice and good things will follow. Um, th there's a lot, I mean, there's so much evidence that that just isn't true. That doesn't happen. Um, very often, we, we even say this explicitly, that ideas often have unintended consequences and perverse effects. And um, therefore, one has to be very careful as well. Um, so you're right, Aristotle identified a particular um, faculty, which he called, in, the Greek word is phronesis, which usually is translated as practical wisdom or practical judgment. It's the ability to reason well about practical matters to have, have a, what, um, what some is called the sense of reality. So that's really important, and Aristotle used this as a, for, as a criticism of his teacher, Plato, because he says, um, you know, we want rulers who um, are, are um, men, of, men and women of ideas, yes, but also have this faculty, this ability to, to um, relate the abstract with the particular, the universal in general with the specific, and come up with um, solutions and prescriptions that um, um, do have are practicable. And if you lose sight of that, well, disaster can ensue. Well, I, I thought that was essentially your big theme. Uh, we, one has to tease it out. You don't hit us over the head with it. But essentially, no. the big theme is uh, the middle way, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the being prepared to entertain both sides of the argument that, that, that uh, is, is, is the acme of, of ambition. I think so. I mean, we, we used at the end, uh, in the conclusion, we, we made the reference to the, the metaphor of the, of the porcupines, you know. Yes. They, they, they need to find that optimal distance from each other um, uh, where they, you know, they get the best of both. Um, a little too close and a little too far is, is going to have, potentially have disastrous consequences. Um, so a lot of political philosophy is trying to find just that balance um, between um, uh, <clears throat> um, ideas and practice, between universal and particular. Um, and it's not easy, obviously. If it was, there would be a lot more agreement. But you'll notice, you may have noticed <laughs> over these 30 thinkers, there isn't a lot of agreement on where that balance is. Um, so uh, it's not easy. But um, I think at least understanding that that's what one should aim for. Um, so our basic idea is that politics now, as it's practiced and particularly as it's discussed now, is unbalanced. It has not uh, found that that equilibrium, and that maybe, perhaps this is the optimism you referred to, maybe by injecting a little bit of uh, some ideas into this, um, maybe we can rebalance it a bit and um, elevate it a bit. Um, not that I think we want to you know, reconstruct the political world according to abstract theories, but simply inject um, uh, perhaps a, a touch more idealism and um, theory into the discussion of everyday politics. Well, you mentioned your 30 thinkers there, and we, so far we've, we've mentioned one or two of them. We're not going to do a list, mm. but you, you do note that um, 
Well, you say a uh, hundred years ago, your list wouldn't have included, for instance, Confucius, Al-Farabi, uh, Maimonides, um, uh, who, who, who are uh, among your chapters. Now, why is, why is that? Is that just fashion or is it a touch, you know, of PC, of political correctness coming in that we, we now need to draw in an African and a couple more women and, uh, you know, a, a, so, a, an, an Asian or two to, to balance out the, the, the Eurocentric uh, um, expectations? Yeah, I mean, um, every, every period will have its own... Um, thinkers that it privileges um, that speak to it more than others. Um, uh, for example, um, in his lifetime, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was uh, virtually unknown, um, and yet now, um, you know, he, uh, almost everyone's heard of Nietzsche, and uh, you, you, can, you can go into an airport uh, bookshop and buy books by Nietzsche now. Um, th- he had to publish his own some of his own books he had to pay for the publication of them himself they sold so poorly um so yeah and he was a, contemptuous of bestsellers as well wasn't he yes he was he was <laughs> um yeah, that's right um he'd be horrified now if he could see how popular he was um but um so here, there's an example of how tastes change values change and um, issues change and some thinkers express um uh, ideas that don't resonate with their own times, but do with ours, and vice versa. So I just think there's a there's a sort of element of relativism here that um, you know uh, cultures are diverse and periods change and tastes change. Uh, there's and there's a lot of that. I mean, look at Karl Marx; he too was virtually unknown uh, in his own lifetime um, and died in relative obscurity, and yet you know. Not that long later, um, a couple of decades into the 20th century, and uh, you know, he's one of the most important and consequential thinkers in history. Most most important and consequential, but not necessarily one of the most right. <laughs> That's right. So we have exactly. So we have not chosen a list of 30 thinkers because we think they're the ones who got things the most right. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, actually, let me let me ask you about one one of the recent ones because you've got the divided them into uh, uh, you know historical and, and and contemporaries. You've got Martha Nussbaum there, really. Is she, is she genuinely of the first rank? Um, it, would would a uh, hundred years from now will she be in this book? Well, the the last question I can't answer because I don't know. Um, uh, <clears throat> um, as for her, well. Um, she, she is an important voice in a particular um, point from a particular point of view that we wanted to represent. And um, as I said, th- this list is highly contentious. Um, aspects of it aren't. Some, some, some. Uh, all lists would include some of these thinkers, but not all lists would include all of these mm-hmm. thinkers. I, I do want to leave the impression to your listeners that um, this is our list. Um, and it's you know not definitive. It's certainly not exhaustive. Um, and other people would have other lists. Well, where, where she does fit in, actually, come to think of it. Now you say that is that um, she, like so many of these um, of these thinkers, is quite interested in telling us how we ought to live um, and uh, and what constitutes you know happiness or what what the, the purpose of human life is and we're going back to again to Plato and Aristotle of uh, uh, pe- people who who wanted to explain to us what 
what what we ought to understand by happiness. Um, and it's not always what, what we think happiness is. It's not happy thoughts always. Uh, no. Um, uh, well, and there are some thinkers like Nietzsche who, who thought happiness was, uh, was not a good that we should pursue. Um, yeah, and against that is um, Nussbaum. Yes, her inspiration is Aristotle, I think, ultimately. Um, and she wants to restore uh, a, a, a universal idea or conception of, of human well-being. Um, but that's highly controversial because we live in a skeptical age where people are um, – reluctant to assert with the confidence that, say, Aristotle had, that there is a particular way to lead a good life. Um, and so that would explain... Oh, and also the idea that the good life is the same thing for everybody. Exactly. Uh, a lot of these uh, these thinkers um, <laughs> are pretty sure they know better yes. than the rest of us. Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so, so one of my particular favorites is uh, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher David Hume. I'm a fan of Hume as well. And, um, you know, he, he was, uh, um, his skepticism is, is, is uh, refreshing, I find, amongst so many thinkers who were so confident, so damn sure of themselves. Um, I think that's one reason why Hume is still popular, um, perhaps more so than some other thinkers. Well, he's, a is, he's congenial as well, isn't he? He's, yes. He's, 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 not, he's not Kant. He's not Immanuel Kant, who's, uh, you know, very austere and very, uh, very clear and, and unbending. Yeah, they're almost opposites in that respect. Um, Kant was a moral absolutist. Yeah, and his personal... Um, <clears throat> habits and lifestyle were very uh, quite puritanical um, uh, but um, uh, but and that said I mean Kant is very very popular and influential in our time um, particularly among liberals because he was uh, been appropriated by liberal thinkers whether he would call himself a liberal I don't know but um, <laughs> the, the word didn't really come into use until afterwards but um, uh, but, but I mean uh, that is a notable feature of these thinkers, uh, most of them, is just how, how sure they were. And um, uh, putting them next to each other, in, in all 30 of them next to each other, all so confident and yet all disagreeing, may itself, I think, be a statement of some kind that, you know, we shouldn't be so damn sure. Yeah. You know, here they all are insisting that they're right when uh, they can't all be right. They might all, they might all be wrong, but they can't all be right. Yeah. Ah, good point. Can I try a couple more on you? Sure. Mao Zedong, uh, did he contribute anything distinctive to the debate? And and, and also, I, I wanted to do Mohandas Gandhi. W wasn't he more a sort of political strategist than a, a system builder? Right. Well, um, it's true. I mean, uh, Mao... Mao situated himself within a tradition of thought, that of Marxism, Marxism-Leninism. Um, and so... It's you know it's his his views his political views are persuasive largely to the degree that you accept that his Marxism Leninism. Um, I must um, you know that depends on who the who the readers are, um, but um, there's there's uh, you know his significance in the history of the 20th century I think um, merits his inclusion, um, if if for if for no other reason. He shows how ideas do have consequences, how ideas can really change the world. Well, yeah, so does Hitler, but yeah, I mean, you haven't put him in as a thinker. <laughs> no, um, that's true. Um, I think that uh, 
Mao had a clear political theory and had developed some of his own ideas, unlike Hitler. Okay. Um, Hitler had a sort of hodgepodge of crazy ideas. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, Mao was a serious thinker in his own right, a serious theorist in his own right. That may have been a bad thing in consequent, you know, in terms of practical consequences. But um, I think he he deserves consideration on the merits of himself as a thinker and an actor in politics. To get away with the uh, from the individuals, uh, I'm I'm going to finally, if I may, uh, I'm going to quote a sentence that you uh, that you, you that you write and ask you to um, to develop that one for us. Politics as a way to manage human societies by means of argument rather than force arose relatively recently in human history and may well disappear in the future. What do you mean by that? Right. Um, well, it's a particular conception of politics which we're endorsing, which is that um, politics is about argument and language and discourse. Um, not everyone accepts that. So um, our view is that when politic, when 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 fighting starts, when when uh, people start shooting, as it were, then politics is over and you're into war. Uh, you're into conflict. Um, now, that not everyone accepts that view. That's debated. So you may know the famous remark by Klaus von, uh, uh, Karl von Clausewitz, the German-Prussian uh, theorist of war, who famously said that war is politics by other means. Yes. So that's a different conception. That's a view that where war is part of politics. So we're arguing uh, that politics is separate from war. From open conflict, this is more in line, you might, you might say, with the ancient Greeks, where who put a lot of emphasis, particularly in ancient Athens, on politics as as discursive and um, and about argument, about debate, about persuading people um, to your view. But isn't that a, a conception of politics that's only going to work in a tiny state like Athens? No, um, it's it's. Um, a conception of politics that works really in almost all contexts where um, people aren't using physical force to coerce others to their position. We say that's not politics, that's war. Um, for example, during the during the English Civil War, um, you know, Parliament was in conflict with, with the Crown um, and it was back and forth and there were debates and arguments and there was all kinds of maneuverings. But at some point, they crossed the threshold and that all stopped and you had war. And that's when politics is over it, and then it, you, you resort to another means. So our point is that um, that conception of politics um, is fairly recent in human history, by which we mean in the last, say, uh, two and a half thousand years or so. Yeah. Um, uh, it's distinct from what goes on in in other forms okay, of well, life. We mentioned, and, and, sorry, we mentioned um, the French Revolution earlier on. Uh, which which category do you put that in? Um, well, I would have you to say, say it's that. a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It, it's it's more tricky, that's for sure. Um, I would say that it is um, well because it, it covered such a long period of time and it wasn't continuous fighting. Um, but I would say the revolution itself was the was the end of politics. Uh -huh. um, and when politics was resumed, when the national uh, assembly was reconstituted, uh, then you had the restoration of politics. Of course, um, 
you know, uh, th there were different phases and periods and there was fighting, etc. But um, I don't think it contradicts the idea that politics, the, the, politics is, is um, essentially about uh, persuading other people. Not necessarily in a gentlemanly way, in a parliament, etc., but using language. Now, language can cover a range of things. It can be, um, you know, a rational debate back and forth, but can also be manipulation. It can be propaganda. It can be rhetoric. Um, there's a whole range of techniques that you can use in language to try and get the other person to go along with what you want. That's all political. Um, it's our point is simply that. Um, when that stops and uh, physical force is used, then that's not really politics. That's war. Well, that's very interesting. And um, the book is also very interesting. Uh, it's How to Think Politically uh, by Graham Garrard and James Bernard Murphy. We've been talking to Graham uh, from Bloomsbury, and it's £14. Thank you very much. My pleasure, indeed. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.